Welcome to Racing Heart, presented by the National Centre for Sports Cardiology, a centre that specialises in an athlete's most important tool, their heart. My name is Alex Clemens and welcome to episode three of the podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you go back and check out episode one and two with the founding members of the National Centre for Sports Cardiology and episode two with Paris-Roubaix winner, Matthew Heyman. We've got another cyclist on the podcast today, an Olympian, two-time Olympian, Georgia Baker, who recently represented Australia at the team's pursuit in Tokyo. She has an amazing story to tell. It tragically starts off with the passing of her father from a heart attack, from a heart disease, before Georgia goes into how she gets back into her career and discovers that she has her own heart disease, superventricular tachycardia or otherwise known as SVT. I'm also joined by Dr. Maria Brosnan, who is one of the founding members of the National Centre for Sports Cardiology and was the cardiologist that was treating Georgia throughout this journey. Maria explains the treatment process for Georgia and what they were looking for throughout this process and what and how she got to that point of being able to get back on the bike, get back to elite sport at the top, top level. If you do enjoy this podcast, please leave a review, tell a friend, follow us on social, and we're really keen to hear your feedback on your thoughts on the the episodes and any topics that you'd like to hear us cover. Before we get into the episode, a quick reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are designed to be general in nature and should not be used as a substitute for personal medical assessment. If you do have any symptoms, concerns, please consult your doctor. Thanks for joining the podcast today, Maria and Georgia. It's an amazing story that you've got to tell, Georgia, which is a, a roller coaster ride with a tragedy that happened way too early in, into your life with the passing of your father um, before you had your own personal heart issues. Could you maybe just start off by talking about the effect that Patrick, your father, had on your career? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, my dad was like a huge factor for me riding my bike, I suppose. Um, he played an enormous role in my career and my success on the bike. Um, I remember first getting selected in the Talent ID program and he would just he started riding because he didn't want me to ride on the country roads by myself. So he started riding with me. He was my training buddy. He used to drop me all the time, though, which was really annoying. Um, but, no, he was a huge part to my career and someone that, it was just like the thing that we did together. Like he would come to races with me, take time off work. And so his loss um, like was, you know, his death and his passing is a huge loss to my, me and my family. Mm. Yeah. What, can you just articulate what point in your career that was? Where, where were you at that time? What were you doing? Um, yeah. where, which Olympic cycle you were in? Yeah, so when he passed away, it was early 2015. Um, I was actually about to leave to go overseas because it was my opportunity to put my hand up for the 2016 Rio Olympics. So it was really important for me to kind of go on this trip with the girls to Holland. Um, and it was actually like the, the, the day that he passed, we were going out for dinner as a family because I was heading to Adelaide and then going to Europe. Um, and he knew how important it was and I wouldn't see him for a few months. I was like, yeah, it'll be a nice send off. Um, but then, yeah, so we were all getting ready to go and, yeah, my dad just, yeah, never came home. So, um, yeah, that was just, like, obviously a huge shock yeah, and passed away from a huge heart attack. And, yeah, so that kind of, like, his, the role that he played in my career, I 
was like, I, do I go overseas? Do I not? Do I stay and look help my family? Like I felt a really big responsibility um, being the oldest daughter um, to look after my family. But I know that he would be so disappointed if I didn't go and like, you know, pursue my dreams and try and make the Olympic team. So I left to go overseas three weeks after he passed away. When you went overseas, how, how did that go? Yeah, it was, um, I think I was in shock. Like I just went, I was kind of on this mission now and I kind of have, I look back now and I feel like I just had this like tunnel vision and it was just everything for the Olympic Games. Um, and in saying that, like, it was, it was good at the time, but then looking back now, I'm like, I probably didn't deal with his death at the time. I just kind of delayed my grief. Like, yeah, I was upset and I would cry, but it was kind of like I would go to the Olympics and then I would think that if I made it there and after the Olympic Games, then he'll be there. Like, I know it sounds silly, but that's just the kind of how I thought about it and how I got through it at the time. Um, but yeah, like, obviously my trip overseas went really well because I got selected in the Olympic team and raced in it at uh, the Rio Olympics but um, yeah it was it was always him I suppose pushing me um, yeah behind the scenes. Mm. Mm. Then so Patrick passed away your father Patrick passed away from an unexpected heart attack then when was the first time that you noticed that there might be something wrong with your heart? Um, Yeah so the first time um, I was away I was riding with Michelton um, and it was like my first contract I was super excited I was in Gavarate at the time um, it was my second race it was the Tour of Britain and it was the first kind of big race that I'll be racing with the girls so I was at stage one and it was kind of a warm day and I remember just sitting on the start line and like I was nervous but I didn't think I'd be that nervous for my heart rate to be like 130 on the start line I was like oh my god like is that okay? Like that's a little bit strange. Anyway, I just kind of ignored it and the first section of the road race was under control so it was really easy. We're not putting out very many watts and you're just sitting behind a car um, and I remember looking down at my heart rate and it felt like I felt really fluttery and a little bit tight in the chest um, and I looked down and my heart rate was like 170 and then it would kind of drop away and I at, the, at that time I would feel kind of lightheaded as well um and I was just like oh that's really weird I remember speaking to one of my teammates Gracie Elvin at the time and told her that I was just I felt a little bit funny like my heart yeah something wasn't quite right and I just kept pushing through it because I was like if I pull out now I can't start the next day this is like I don't know a six seven day tour like I need to help the team um and if it's just nothing if it's just my nerves then like I don't know I'd feel so bad pulling out of a, a race like that but then I got to one particular little pinch and like I just had to kind of unclip. I had no choice. I was like, oh, my God, like I feel like I was having a heart attack. Um, and, yeah, I unclipped and, yeah, saw that like the ambulance was there um, and they took me to the hospital um, in the UK. And that's when I was initially diagnosed with pericard- pericarditis. pericarditis. <laughs> Thanks, Maria. Um, and, yeah, from then on I had a lot of like ongoing tests um, yeah, through the ETC and things like that with the Australian cycling team and eventually got flown back to Australia because I needed to do some more tests to see what was going on. So you were rolling out of the in the neutral zone, which is this, the period before the race where you are normally doing next to no effort. Yeah. It's more of a, 
uh, a European tradition where you roll out of the center of town and your heart was racing. Yeah, it was like on off. It wasn't the entire time. Um, that's why I was unsure of what to do. Like I would be okay and it would drop and then all of a sudden it would spike again. Um, and, and it would. I probably had three spikes within 15 minutes yeah. and that's, yeah, and the last one being the worst. And did it feel the same as if you were at threshold, if you were at 170 beats? No, no, no. It felt really quite tight and I felt quite lightheaded as well. So that's why I knew initially there was something wrong um, because it didn't feel like it was just me being nervous or a fresh feeling on the yeah. bike or anything like that. It was definitely something more than that. Yeah. Maria, what, what do you think when you hear these symptoms and what was going on? And Yeah, Georgia gives a better history now than she did when I first met her. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, look, you know, hearing um, Georgia describes um, her symptoms very well, um, so symptoms, you know, some of, and some of the things that we look out for, I guess, when we take a history from an athlete who's had trouble with, you know, shortness of breath or palpitations. So, you know, uh, when she describes noticing that her heart rate was very high, even though she was under low-level exertion, the first thing you think about is some kind of heart rhythm problem. So your heart's sort of doing its own thing and, and racing at a pace that is inappropriate for the level of activity. And then the other uh, symptoms she describes, like feeling lightheaded and tight in the chest, again, fit really well with it probably being a heart rhythm problem. Um, but I guess that's easy to say in retrospect, because if you took any one of those symptoms in isolation, and that was the one that you presented with, then there's a whole other list of differential diagnoses that you have to work through. So if all Georgia said was she felt tight in the chest, particularly in the context of her father's history, people would go down the path of thinking maybe there's a problem with the blood supply to the heart rather than there being a primary problem with the heart rhythm that's causing those other symptoms. Mm. So when, so post the race, you were flown to the UK, did you say? Yeah, I was in the, I was in the UK and then I was flown back to Italy um, and I then got some tests done at the European, the European Training Centre there in Gavarate where we were all staying. Um, and there's a, a residential doctor that stays there. And he, like, I told him about my symptoms and he obviously knew about my dad and the history there. Um, and so there was obviously a few red flags. And, yeah, I got some more t tests done in, um, over there in Italy. And then nothing really came of it because I had a, a um, CT scan. You did, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, I didn't have any of my arteries blocked or anything like my dad had. And th there was still something not quite right. So they decided it'd be best to come back to Australia and to get some more t tests done at the Baker Institute. In, at the ETC, Maria, what, what were they testing for? What were they hoping to find? Yeah, what were they look, I think the main, uh, I think, again, everyone was a little bit anxious and a little bit focused on um, George's father's history. And he had premature coronary artery disease, so a blockage in one of his arteries. And so... I think it was, a, it was a sensible thing to do just to take that out of the differential diagnoses. So Georgia had a, a CT scan of her coronary arteries, so the blood supply to the heart, just to show that that wasn't the problem. And then I think, I can't remember if you actually had some sort of more prolonged heart rhythm monitoring there or not, but nothing was mm. detected, nothing came up. Um, and I think just yeah, given, you know, it is sometimes difficult via remote control to sort things out, particularly when symptoms are intermittent. And so, you know, the decision was made mm. to sort of come home and take some time and sort it out. Mm -hmm. So you fly home and then, then what happens? Yeah, so I fly home. Um, I 
yeah, saw Maria at the, <laughs> um, at the Baker Institute. And, yeah, no, I suppose we were just trying to discover what was going on here because, as Maria said, it was it was happening really spontaneously. Like, it was – I didn't know when I was going to get these um, raises of my heart rate, like, when it was going to elevate. Um, so, it was hard to kind of record or it didn't happen – necessarily when I was riding my bike sometimes I had it in the shower and I was like oh my gosh I need to sit down like it would happen really really randomly so it was trying to find um you know when this was happening and how often it was happening so I remember getting having a halter monitor um on for three or four days and then that could track my heart rhythms and the beats and everything um yeah over that and see how often I was having it. Maria was this when you first saw Georgia, or you first met her in Melbourne, yep. uh, what what were you thinking at that point? Yeah, look, on the, on the basis of the history, the most likely thing really was going to be some kind of heart rhythm problem. Um, and you can't really tell what kind of heart rhythm problem just from the symptomatology. Uh, so it's really just going back to basics, making sure that the structure and function of Georgia's heart is normal so we did an ultrasound of a heart which you know just looked like an athlete's heart a bit bigger than the average joe's beating a bit slower than the average joe's um and then i remember on that day we actually did um an exercise we did a vo2 Mm -hmm. max or an exercise stress test to see if we could see any rhythm problems under high load and we actually didn't on the bike everything was fine but then afterwards uh when the nurse was fitting your halter monitor she noticed that george's heart rate even though she was about 15 minutes post-exercise was sitting at about 110 which may not sound very high but that's pretty unusual for an elite athlete to have a heart rate of 110 when they really would normally be fully recovered so we managed to capture that rhythm problem um at the and it mm. by the time uh, we hooked up the halter monitor you'd actually flip back to normal rhythm but we got one ecg strip that caught it so that was really informative um then over the three days when you wore the halter there was nothing <laughs> you didn't yeah. have any more but we we had that that ECG at the get-go, which was really the key. Yeah. And is that, one of the, is that one of the biggest challenges for you when a patient comes to see you is trying to capture that point? Absolutely, yeah. Particularly with um, the heart rhythm stuff because um, you can have a completely normal resting ECG, which is most commonly what you find, but then you have these very um, intermittent and unpredictable symptoms. Um, so sometimes you can be lucky enough to identify a precipitant and know that you're going to be able to trigger it and, and document that with an ECG. But often it takes us weeks or months to, to, to do that. So it might be sort of repetitive halter monitors. Um, sometimes, I think we've talked about this before, we sometimes use devices now that clip to the back of your phone and can sort of record a rhythm strip. They probably w- they may have just come into existence when I saw you. Um, and then if we're really stumped and we're still thinking that it's probably a heart rhythm problem, then we can implant a little device underneath the skin on the chest wall that records um, records abnormal heart rhythms. But that can be harder to interpret than actually being lucky enough to get a 12-lead ECG at the time of the symptoms. Mm-hmm. But did you feel anything before that race? Um, not necessarily. Like, I look back now and I think, oh, maybe there was something wasn't quite right, but it was... That was probably the main, like, that's where I felt it, like, the first time. But, yeah, looking back now, I, like, I feel different now after having the operation. Um, So, yeah, definitely there would have been times where I would have had it and I just didn't realise, like, I just thought that was normal and that was just me. Mm. Mm. Yeah, right. So, Maria, once you captured that piece on the ECG, 
um, was the diagnosis pretty clear? Not, not absolutely, um, because Georgia didn't have any symptoms at that time. So you're still thinking this is probably what it is, but we have to exclude other things. Um, and at that time, and also given what we'd seen on that ECG, although it's annoying, um, the rhythm that we identified was a thing called supraventricular tachycardia, or commonly known as SVT. And that's much less concerning than other, some of the other heart rhythm problems. So um, in some way, it was, it was good that we had a piece of information that might have explained George's symptoms, um, and also reassuring that it wasn't something particularly serious, but potentially more annoying. And at that time, you know, uh, I think you were going back to Adelaide and I felt it safe to do so. All the tests had been otherwise normal. Um, and look, normally, if, if that were the diagnosis, it's, as I said, it's not a serious one. And oftentimes we don't have to do anything because it just goes away on its own. So really, we were left with, this is what we think it is. Let's just see what happens as to whether we need to intervene. And so does it mm, kind of change the outcome because Georgia is an elite athlete? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So the path, the sort of management pathway is quite different if you're an athlete because for Georgia, as much as it's not a serious thing, it's pretty annoying and would definitely affect performance if it happens during a race. So you're much more likely to intervene and do something that's potentially curative rather than just sitting back and waiting and either doing nothing and saying, look, it's short-lived, it's just going to go away, or using things like medications. So that very much sort of led us down the intervention pathway because it was important to just basically nip it in the bud and let it get on with things. Mm -hmm. And the surgery, is that the, that the outcome of this? Yeah, so yeah. An, an ablation procedure. And what do they do there? So um, because we, you know, we knew from this ECG that we thought the rhythm uh, was coming from... So I guess I should just explain a little about the, a bit about the heart and how it works to make it make sense. Yeah. So your heart's a pump, basically. Um, it's got four chambers. The two chambers at the top are called the atria and they sort of collect blood. And then you've probably heard of ventricles. They're the pumping chambers and they pump blood to your body and your, and your lungs. And normally when your heart generates an electrical impulse, there's this little node or um, sort of almost like the ignition called the sinoatrial node at the top of the right atrium. And that's where heart impulses are usually generated. Um, and then it travels down to this thing called the atrioventricular node, which is in between the top collecting chambers and the pumping chambers. So it all you know, carries quite uniformly and then the ventricles contract and, and um, blood gets pumped around your body. So in supraventricular tachycardia, what's happening is there's either an extra circuit up in the top around in between that sinoatrial node and the AV node, or there's just another little, a little sort of second AV node that can create its own circuit. And that's what you had. Um, so um, you can either control that with medication. Um, sometimes it just stops happening. Um, but there is also the opportunity to intervene and go in and, and find that little bit of extra tissue or the extra pathway and literally burn it. Like if you've ever had, like a GP burn something off your, your face or it's like a... Nice. <laughs> yeah. I hated it. So they, they use what's called radiofrequency ablation. So they stick a, a catheter up for a big vein in your leg get up into the heart, stimulate it, see if they can create what we saw on the ECG, find where it's coming from and zap it. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. Yeah, and you're awake for it too, mind you're you. You're awake. Yeah. Well, I yeah. was put to sleep when the catheter was inserted, yep. but um, yeah, I was awake because, yeah. Sometimes, sure yeah, well, so if you have people completely asleep, often that takes away sort of the adrenergic drive and you're less likely to be able to induce the 
you know, yeah. the, the arrhythmia that you want. So once the catheters are up, it's not painful. They, you know, the, the, pa most pa the only painful part is getting sort of the puncture through the groin. And then, you know, there's no sensation in your heart you other than you might feel extra beats. It's not like it's painful when they, when they zap it. So often they will do it with people awake. See, so you're just lying there while there's these doctors just... Yeah, I, th my, I thought it was painful. Yeah. Yeah, that was... That, yeah. that may be, like, they, probably, they would have done things like make a heart race at a million miles an hour. Yeah. Um, and potentially giving you medication to try to induce something abnormal. It was only through the burning, like, the my surgeon would be like, okay, we're going to burn now, Georgia. And then it would be like a max, he'll count down from 30 seconds and burn. But I had to burn quite a lot, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. How long was the surgery? Well, initially they told me it would be 45 minutes. And then I was ended up being in there for two hours because mm. it took them a while to find it. Um, and, yeah, obviously you don't want to go burning mm. random spots of your heart. So they had to find exactly where it was coming from. Um, yeah. So. And does this kind of surgery have quite a high success rate? It does. Yeah, it does. So if you, it does if you can actually find the causative problem. So if you can find an extra pathway or that extra little bit of tissue. So some people who undergo the procedure, you won't be able to induce any kind of abnormal heart rhythm. The chances of success are a lot higher if you go into it knowing what the problem is in the first place. And I guess in some ways we're lucky in that way with Georgia. Because sometimes people undergo the procedure only having had symptoms, but not actually having had the rhythm problem documented. So we usually, we try everything we can to document what we think it is before we go ahead. Yeah. And then as, as Georgia said, the, then the risk, although it's, there's a high success rate, there's a small complication rate. And the one we're most scared about, particularly in young people, is if you burn a little bit of that tissue too close to either of those nodes that generate electrical impulses, then you may end up needing a pacemaker because you could burn away the heart's own ability to generate impulses in the normal way. So that's why they take a lot of time and care to make sure they're in the right spot. Mm -hmm. After the surgery, was there much of a recovery or were you just... Oh, yeah, the, the recovery and the turnaround was really quick. I, I think it was about a week before I was allowed to go back on and backbeat onto my bike. Um, I had to lay down for 48 hours. Um, and then, yeah, I was able to walk around, do most things and start riding within, yeah, seven days. Yeah. And did you feel good? Um, yeah, initially I was really nervous that I was probably paying too much attention to it. You know, yeah. I was like, oh my God, it's back because there, there was a chance that it, could, it didn't work. Um, they thought they had, they were like 97% sure. But I, in my head, I'm like, oh, there's still 3% that yeah. it could be there. But no, um, initially, like I felt... Yeah, I was think I was just overthinking it a little bit. But then I, a month down the track, that's when I started to really think like, oh, I haven't got this. Like I stopped thinking about it and I just carried on and rode my bike and yeah, felt a lot better. That's yeah. when, yeah. Yeah. And in terms of, so you've done the surgery, were, from a medical perspective, were you worried about it coming back? Were you monitoring it? Were you keeping no, track look, of I think really given that Georgia, the symptoms Georgia had had, you're really guided by whether the symptoms return. Um, and uh, Prash, the, the doctor who performed the procedure, was quite confident that it would be successful. So there's a, you know, there's a, a very small chance of recurrence, but you know, we're a few years down the track now, so that would be incredibly unlikely for it to, to come back. Is it a common disease? Yeah, well, it's not common in terms of... Um, large numbers of it, but it's the most common rhythm problem in young people. So I think the prevalence is something like, it's about 
30 per 100,000 people of that sort of 15 to 30 age group mm -hmm. would have SVT. Um, so it's not a lot of people, but if you look at things that cause rhythm problems in young people, it's the most common. Yeah. And you've been all good ever since. Yeah, I've felt I haven't had yeah, really any issues um, with my heart. So, yeah, touch wood. It's all going all, good. All going well. Is there much research or is there a need for research in this space? Not really in this space. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that I'm not, not an electrophysiologist, so there's probably you know, device research into the catheters that they use and things like that. But it's not something that really has us baffled in terms of the, um, why it happens. So these little extra bits of tissue and extra pathways are just there at birth. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a little bit different um, to things like atrial fibrillation, which can sort of be acquired over time due to load on the heart. Um, this is something I guess that's a, bit, a lot better understood and treatment is, is a lot easier. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Are you thinking Agreed. another Olympic cycle after? That's a good question, Alex. Mm. Um, at the moment, yeah, like I'm, I'm really enjoy riding my bike and I think it's a real privilege that I get to be able to do what I do for my job. Um, and yeah, I think if I'm enjoying it, then I would love to. I've actually got to get a few more tests done on my heart just to make sure everything's all good. Um, in the operation, they found a little bit of scarring um, on my heart. So need to make sure that's all clear, but I've had tests done previously and everything's fine. Um, and yeah, hopefully I would like to go onto the road for a little bit. So that'll be nice. I feel like I've got some unfinished business there um, with how things ended last time mm -hmm. with my heart. So, but yeah, for sure at the moment, like um, I'm keen to keep riding. Yeah, Maria, what, in terms of when you say scarring on the heart, what, what's happening there? Yeah, I think probably what George is referring to during the... Um, so they basically do a study of, you know, map the heart when they put those catheters up. And from memory talking to Prash, they'd found relatively low voltages in those little collecting chambers. Uh, and we're not sure what that means. And we haven't really done a whole lot of these kind of studies specifically on athletes. And it, it may be that it's related to your degree of athleticism. Um, and it, and it, it's very likely it's not going to cause um, Georgia a problem, but it was just sort of noted at the time. Um, and the, on her ECG, so just the, the normal tracing of the heart, the time that it takes for the electrical impulse to get from that sinoatrial node down to the AV node is a little bit longer than the average Joe's. Um, and that, again, that's something we see really commonly in athletes. I, I suspect it's got nothing to do with the fact that she had SVT, uh, but I guess I'm used to just seeing, I see, I guess, more athletes than non-athletes, whereas Prash sees more non-athletes than athletes. So he's just, you know, making sure that there's nothing sort of progressive there that he needs to worry about. Mm -hmm. Was there a point there where you weren't able to continue past Tokyo? Yeah, so initially I got told from Prash um, after the surgery, he's like, look, how long do you want to ride your bike for? And I was like, I just really want to go to 2020. Like, I, I really want to go to Tokyo. He's like, yeah. And at the time, that was, yeah, three years away. And I was like, oh. And he was kind of arming and ahhing. He's like, no, you'll be fine for Tokyo and then maybe not after that. And then I was like, oh, what? Like, really stressing. But at the time, I was like, all right, I've got three years. That's okay. Like, I can go to the Olympics again. But then also on top of that, I'm like, I've got all these things I want to achieve and I've got to try and do it all in three years and... Like, that's really unrealistic. Um, but now that's why I'm, I suppose I've been 
really prompt at making sure that I continue with my checkups and making sure everything's okay because I, I want to continue riding my bike and knowing that everything is okay and it's all all good, then that's really positive and promising for my career as well. Mm. What, what were they worried about initially? So I think it's, as I said, just the, because George had an EP study and they saw these low voltages and yeah. they're not necessarily... We are trying to enroll as many athletes as we can who need EP studies just to see what's normal for an athlete. Mm-hmm. And George was probably one of the first in, in one of our studies. So Prash probably has a better understanding three years down the track than he did when he first saw you. But again, had it not been for the fact that George needed to have an EP study and happened to have SVT, we wouldn't be worried about your heart. Mm. And, I, you know, my feeling is that there's no reason there's no reason to think that your career is going to be in any way shortened. We're just learning how to look at um, very detailed examinations of athletes' hearts. Mm. A big thank you to Georgia and Maria for joining the podcast today and Georgia for sharing her amazing story. If you do like this show, please share it with a friend. Please let us know what you think about it via uh, social or you can find an email or you can head to National Centre for Sports Cardiology website uh, to find out more information about the Centre of Excellence. Thanks again for joining the show.